Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I'd like to speak to you today based on uh, our passage from Isaiah chapter 6, this famous vision that Isaiah received just before he was commissioned to speak for God. So I invite you to look at that in your bulletin if you'd like to do that or turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 7. Some of you I know have watched the Netflix series called The Crown, which is a drama about the life of Queen Elizabeth. And I'm told that in one episode, the queen appointed her sister, Princess Margaret, to represent her. And she was to represent her for minor royal engagements. But Princess Margaret wants to spice things up. And she wants to bring some color and flair to the monarchy. So she, in these engagements, uh, speaks her own mind and she jokes with the press, but she also starts to belittle other dignitaries. So the Prime Minister is called in to deal with Princess Margaret, Winston Churchill. And he goes to her to rebuke her and to relieve her of her duties as the monarch's representative. And he says that when you appear in public, You don't represent yourself. You're not commissioned to represent yourself. And Margaret replied, of course I do. And he said, no, you represent the crown. That's what they've come to see, not you, the crown. In our reading today, Isaiah is given a vision of God, the king, And this happens just before he is called to represent and to speak for God. Because after this vision, Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah replied, Here I am, send me. Before he goes out to speak for God, he needs to understand who God is. He needs to understand who he represents. So first, the vision of God, and then the mission for God. First the vision, then the mission. First, knowledge of God, then ministry for God. The knowledge is primary, and everything ought to flow from that. And that sequence, first vision, first knowledge, then mission, that sequence is important. It's essential for us today as individual Christians and as a church. We need to know who God is in order to stand for God and to speak for God. And we need to constantly be renewed in our knowledge of God because it's not about us. We represent Him. So as we look at this vision today, let's see what Isaiah learned about God. He sees that God is the Holy King. He learns about the supreme majesty and the supreme holiness of God. He writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, obviously a symbol of majesty. High and lifted up, 
He is the ultimate authority. He is the king above all other kings. And the train of his robe, that is the hem of his robe, the edge of his robe, fills the temple. A symbol of a majestic garment. We're in the realm of symbolism here. God is spirit. But this conveys, these symbols of God sitting on a throne, conveys the spiritual reality of his majesty and his great authority. Some people think that Isaiah might have received this vision of God while he was worshiping God in the temple in Jerusalem, and God allowed him to see the spiritual reality, the spiritual truth of the God that he's worshiping in Jerusalem in the temple. He says that this vision happened when King Uzziah died, and that was around the year 740 B.C. King Uzziah's reign was lengthy and prosperous. This was at a time when the kingdom of Israel was divided. It was a divided kingdom. Israel was in the north, and Judah, where Jerusalem was, was in the south. And near the end of King Uzziah's reign, the nation of Judah, his nation, began to feel threatened by the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire had already defeated the northern kingdom of Israel. And now the Assyrians had set their sights on this little country of Judah. And the question that Isaiah would put forward to the people of Judah and to the kings is simply this. Will you trust God? Will you trust God to deal with your enemies? Just as he does, or has done, rather, in the past. It was God who had delivered them from Egypt. It was God who told them to march around the city of Jericho. And Jericho's walls fell. And so will you trust that this same God is in control today? That he is on the throne? Will you patiently wait for him? Or will you try to manage your way out of this and trust your own ingenuity and resources and intelligence? Isaiah had this vision of the king of kings after King Uzziah died. And so he knew that God was still on the throne. And he was able to carry out his mission of proclaiming trust in God because he understood that God was sovereign. The majesty of God, the sovereignty of God he encountered in this vision. And then we see that Isaiah encounters the holiness of God. God is the Holy One of Israel. That's a phrase that Isaiah uses over and over again. Isaiah sees these mysterious angelic creatures above the throne, the seraphim. And the name possibly means something like fire or flame. These mysterious, flaming, angelic creatures above the throne of God, calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, not just the heavenly realm, but the whole earth is full of the glory of God. It's a scene that is similar to the one we read about in Revelation. And those scenes tell us that in the heavenly throne room, there are these angelic creatures that are continually praising God for this quality, his holiness, his holiness. 
Uh, One commentator says this is the only time in the Hebrew Bible, here in Isaiah 6, the only time in the Hebrew Bible that a quality is raised to the power of three. And that conveys the idea, this commentator says. It almost had to be, it had to be invented here because the human mind is not able to grasp the infinite holiness of God. It is beyond anything that we can really conceive. The word holy has the idea of unapproachable brightness. Unapproachable brightness. Have you ever encountered a brightness that you can't behold for too long? It's unapproachable. It emphasizes the separateness of God, His otherness, His superiority, His moral superiority, His purity. And Isaiah is called to represent this holy God to a people who have forgotten or don't want to hear about the holiness of God. So Isaiah needs to know that God is holy. He needs to know this in his bones as he goes out to represent this God. Isaiah 1-5 through gives us some background on what was going on in Judah at the time. It's sort of God's indictment against the people of Judah. He lays out his case in Isaiah 1-5. through listing some of the things that were going on in the culture, the way that the culture had deteriorated. And so just give you a little snapshot here. It was a violent society. They, they came to worship God. They raised their hands in worship and prayer to God. But God says, I will not receive your worship because, chapter 1, 15, chapter 1, verse 15, your hands are full of blood, a violent society. It was a corrupt culture. He says in verse 23 of chapter 1, everyone loves a bribe. It was a culture filled with injustice. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. So the most vulnerable in this society, the fatherless, the orphans, and the widows who had nobody else to rely on, they turned away when they sought justice. This was a a society that had grown spiritually apathetic and complacent. They knew how to party. They, they knew how to have a good time because he says in chapter 5, the men have become heroes at drinking wine and mixing strong drink. <laughs> they were heroes at this. They had a reputation for knowing how to party. But they did not regard the deeds of the Lord or the work of His hands. They were spiritually apathetic. Heroes at drinking but not heroes of the faith. And so God calls Isaiah to remind his nation that he, God, is the Holy One of Israel. And and to warn them of judgment that is to come because, because he is holy, he cannot just turn a blind eye to this injustice and indifference that he sees. And God says, my people are going to go into exile because of their lack of knowledge. That's exactly what happened. The Babylonian exile in 586 B.C. And Isaiah is warning the people of this. And he realizes that God is holy and wants to wake them up to the holiness of God. Now I wonder, friends, do you think we need a vision of God today as the holy king? As the one who is holy other than us? as the one who is high and lifted up on a throne, 
as the one who reigns in eternity and the one who above him are these heavenly creatures who are constantly declaring that he is holy, holy, holy? Do you think we need a fresh vision, a fresh understanding today of God as the majestic, holy one? John Stott wrote these uh, words that are very convicting and applicable today. He wrote these words 30 years ago. The kind of God who appeals to most people today would be easygoing in his tolerance of our offenses. He would be gentle, kind, accommodating, and would have no violent reactions. Unhappily, even in the church, we seem to have lost the vision of the majesty of God. There is much shallowness and levity among us. Prophets and psalmists would probably say of us that there is no fear of God before their eyes. In public worship, our habit is to slouch. We do not kneel, let alone prostrate ourselves in humility before God. It is more characteristic, he says, of us to clap our hands. Maybe that doesn't apply here. It is more characteristic of us to clap our hands with joy than to blush with shame or tears. We, that's okay, I'll wait for that. <laughs> it happens. He says, we saunter up to God to claim his friendship, but it does not ever occur to us that he might send us away. We, we need to recover, and I need to recover, the truth that God is the Holy One particularly important for people who speak of the holy God and handle holy things. It's easy to forget that we're in the presence of a holy God. And that the God we worship is infinitely more majestic and holy than we can fathom. So in light of the majestic holiness of God, Isaiah becomes aware of his sinfulness. That's another thing that he is made aware of in this vision of God. Not only is God majestically holy, but I am unclean in his presence. Woe is me, he says, for I am lost. I am destroyed. I am undone, is the way you could translate that. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He knows that he is not worthy to stand before God, much less to speak for him. And he confesses that his lips are unclean. And maybe he's thinking about specific sins of the lips. Maybe it's lying. Maybe it's slander. But probably the case is that he knows that God is going to call him to speak for him with his lips, and he's not worthy to do that in himself. And so he comes to a place of of devastation in the presence of God, and utter humility. And this is the humility of spirit that we all need. This is where you get it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says. Where do you get that humility? It comes from knowing that God is a holy God, and in His presence we need to be made clean. And compared to Him, we are not clean. And so we need His grace. Some people do not like to think about that, do not want to face up to that, have all sorts of strategies to ignore that or to rationalize away their sin, their uncleanness in the presence of God. 
And some people don't want to deal with it, so they distance themselves from God, and they, they put up a wall because they don't want to think about God as the holy other and their own sin. Sort of a natural instinct to recoil from that. I remember watching a movie some years ago, and I don't remember the name of this movie. I wish I could remember it. I just remember one thing about this movie, and it was a scene where a man is talking to his friend at a table about his daughter and his young daughter. He's estranged from his young daughter and the mother, and he's talking about how he, he still tries to keep in touch with the daughter, and he sends gifts once in a while, but he doesn't really have a relationship with her. And so his friend said, well, um, why don't you try to, to reach out to her and develop a, a relationship? You're her dad. You need to get to know her. And this man had lived a, a very rough life, and he was ashamed of so much that he had done. He was carrying around all this guilt and baggage. And he said, I'm not worthy to see her. She's young, and she's innocent. And after all that I've done, I don't feel worthy to, to even be in her presence. I'm guilty of too many things. So he forfeited this relationship with his daughter because of the guilt that he felt because of the man that he was. And some people are like that with God. But the good news of the Bible is that this holy, majestic, awesome God, the creator of all things, is also a God of grace and mercy. And Isaiah encounters that here as well. The holy God is a God of grace. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. You see, God makes a way for the unclean to be clean, for the guilty to be forgiven. And notice that the atonement, and this is important here, the atonement comes from the altar. The altar is a place, of course, of sacrifice. So atonement comes from sacrifice. And throughout the Old Testament, God is teaching the people of Israel through the sacrificial system as the priest made atonement year after year at the altar of sacrifice and day after day for the forgiveness of sins. God has been training His people that forgiveness is costly. It costs a sacrifice. And that is pointing to the day when God would provide the final sacrifice for the sins of the whole world at the cross of Jesus Christ. God takes the initiative here to cleanse people. He pays the price. Isaiah looked forward to the day when the suffering servant would come and die for the sins of the people. And so we recall that beautiful passage in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant who would be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities and upon Him, the chastisement that brought us peace, was laid, and by his stripes were healed. So this sacrifice, this cleansing that happens through the altar, pointing to Jesus and fulfilled in the cross of Christ. And so we can be clean in the presence of God. And I just want to say, if there's someone here, as you think about God's holiness and his otherness, and you sense your guilt and your shame and maybe thinking about things that you have done, I want to say to you to look to Jesus. The cleansing sacrifice of the cross of Christ 
makes us whole. Robert Murray McShane said, and he was a pastor, I think, in the 19th century, for every look at your sinful self, take ten looks at Jesus. His grace is greater than all of our sin. His grace restores. His grace gives hope. His grace gives life. And so that's what Isaiah learned in this vision. God is holy. I am not. He is pure. I'm unclean. But God has made a way for me to be clean because of His grace and mercy. If we don't understand the holiness of God, the depth of that, though, we will not really be able to sing with much gusto or belief that God's grace really is amazing. It's amazing grace because he is infinitely holy. (laughs) And we would perhaps fall prey to the the false idea that, that God's grace is just something we ought to expect. This is just what God does. But no, God is the holy other one, but he, out of his love and mercy, has made a way. So Isaiah is humbled by God, cleansed by God, and now he's ready to represent God. He's ready to speak for God. He wants other people to know this same God, and this is the message that he's going to carry to the people of Judah, to the people of Israel. He is the Holy One of Israel. You need to turn to him and repent of your sin. And in his grace, there is hope and there is forgiveness. As I was thinking about how to apply this today, And thinking about our call as a church and as individuals to represent God to the world. We need to lift up these fundamental truths about God in our church and in our families and to our children and to our grandchildren. The holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God. And we think about where we're at as a a society and there's a lot of hand-wringing in the church about where the church is headed and about how to reach new people for Christ. And, and that's understandable. We live in this post-Christian culture and we see attendance rates declining and young people dropping out and not interested. And so people are now asking, what, what can we do? What must we do to reach new people and to reach a new generation? And what programs do we need to put forward? And what style of worship will they like? And And maybe, and I read an article here at the local paper just a month or so ago, maybe the answer is let's just get rid of meeting together and get rid of church buildings and do it all online and stream the whole thing. There are all sorts of ideas and proposals about how to reach the next generation. Don't worry about that. That's not at all what I'm thinking. But the question, the conversation is healthy. It's interesting because we are... God's representatives to these people and to this culture, and we want to reach people for Christ, and we need to speak to them in a way that they understand. And we need to hear their questions. There needs to be honest conversation back and forth. We need to meet people to some.